We've never seen a change on this scale in human history anywhere in the world, I think. Just a few decades ago, you'd see that whole top of the north covered by a shining field of ice. And in a few decades from now, at summer's end, it'll be dark water. It'll look completely different. The planet from space will look completely and utterly different. Canada proudly calls itself the Great White North. But in recent years, like many other places on Earth, Canada and the Canadian Arctic are bombier. This week on the Nature Stories podcast, producer Chris Wadsko explores what it means to be an Arctic nation in a time of climate change. I'm Samantha Brown with Atlantic Public Media, curating this podcast in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy and the Public Radio Exchange. For the past four years, we've brought you weekly stories about the intersection of people and place. This feature marks our final podcast while we seek the financial support to resume. Thanks to all of you who have listened over the years. Up now, Arctic Reimagined, produced by Chris Wadsko for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It isn't one thing, it isn't stable, it changes over time, but it persists. And that's what I find fascinating is the way, the sort of imagining of the North, the, uh, the way it is sedimented in the imaginations of, uh, of people began in the 19th century or even earlier as uh, a space that was barren, uninhabited, I think I've always loved the idea of wilderness, and and that's one thing that really did captivate me very early on, was the idea of this huge open space and not very many people. Cold and dark all the time. Well, I imagined it would be a great expanse of frozen sea with uh, a rather bleak landscape uh, covered in ice. Frightening and probably very deadly. You know, this sort of forbidding landscape with, uh, with lots of snow and ice and very strong winds and big storms. And, you know, the adventure would be of, of trying to, to pit yourself against those kinds of, of elements. That's probably the way most Canadians who live south of 60 imagine the Arctic. The land of the midnight sun and nights that last for weeks. Polar bears and dog teams. The romance of the fur trade and doomed expeditions bearing names like Franklin. Woodcuts of ships locked in ice. Bone-chilling winds screaming over a bleak white landscape. An endless sea of crumpled ice. Frayed black and white photographs of leather-skinned explorers staring intensely from another century. That imagery is part of what defines us as Canadians. It's not just the Inuit and other dwellers of the Canadian Arctic whose sense of place and sense of self are profoundly informed by the climate and landscape of the North. It's all of us who like to think of ourselves as citizens of the Great White North. It's deeply ingrained in our identity as Canadians, this imaginary Arctic. Despite the um, decades and decades. I mean, there's really an enormous amount of representation uh, from popular culture and music and cartoons and, you know, table mats <laughs> that represent Canadians as, uh, as Arctic. Cheryl Grace knows a thing or two about the connection between Canadian identity and the Arctic. She's an English professor at the University of British Columbia and the author of Canada and the Idea of North. 
take, for example, the use of the polar bear to advertise everything from boutique beer through to trinkets in the airport. Uh, Despite this, very few Canadians actually go uh, into the either the the northern tundra uh, or, or the Arctic areas of the country. In fact, when you talk to a northern Canadian like Zacharias Konuk, the acclaimed Enoch filmmaker from Iglulik, whose work includes Atanajewat, Canada starts to sound almost like a version of Chile turned on its side. A strip of land thousands of miles long containing most of the population with this huge, sparsely populated northern appendage. When I see southerners talk about Canada, it's from St. John's to Vancouver, right across. And most of the time, we're part of Canada, but we're left out. We're, we're like in another country. It certainly seems to be the policy of, of the government to, to get these resources. We have to protect the North because of all these great things that we can get from it. And yet we don't seem to be willing to embrace the beauty that's inherent in it um, and the subtle, to, subtle sort of elements of that environment that are so um, difficult for the casual visitor to pick up. Maybe we haven't only been imagining the Arctic. Maybe those of us who live in that belt of Canada along the U.S. border only imagine we're a northern people. If that sounds disillusioning, many foreigners feel the same way, like Alan Anderson, a British science writer whose new book is After the Ice, Life, Death, and Geopolitics in the New Arctic. We do see Canada very much as a great nation of open spaces and northerly open spaces and of people uh, traveling uh, by canoe and other adventurous ways into that far north. The image of Toronto does not come to mind to British people when you talk about Canada at all. I had a feeling that Canadians would have a very similar view of the Arctic as a great place to go for adventures, a place in their summer holidays they'd want to head up to. But but when I got to Canada and started to talk about the Arctic, the, the major reaction was, why would you want to go there? It's cold. We want to head south, not north. It's cold enough here already. Uh, and the Arctic held a completely different place. It was somewhere uh, incom- inconvenient, inhospitable, and certainly not any place uh, for a holiday. So when I got up to the Arctic, I found the major people I met there were other British people like myself, quite a few Americans, and also, of course, Australians who were adventurer travellers. But you didn't meet many Canadians. Living in Norway, it was really interesting to see just how central this small Arctic territory was for Norwegians. I mean, Svalbard Archipelago is is tiny in comparison to Canada. But there is this draw, the people in in Norway to to a fault. It's a magnetic place for them. They're drawn there. And yet you don't see that same intensity with, uh, with few exceptions in Canada. We don't sort of seek it out in the same way. It doesn't weave into the fabric of our culture. We really do have this northern ocean that is ours, but we're very slow to realize it. And if more Canadians did seek out the Arctic, they might find a place that defies their imagination. My name is David Barber. I'm a professor at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and I specialize in sea ice uh, process studies. We could talk for hours and hours and hours about ice. Some of it lives through a summer. It actually uh, survives through the summer and and refreezes the next year. We call that multi-year sea ice. And, uh, of course, sea ice is also salty. The brine creates uh, a habitat for microorganisms, things like viruses and bacteria and 
these organisms have evolved over a long period of time to take advantage of the microstructure of this material. And in fact, there are members of our research uh, team that, that use that as a way to study what life would look like on a very icy uh, planet elsewhere in our solar system. Really, when I was working with uh, Dr. Ian Sterling, uh, we were out on the sea ice and he slipped a hydrophone, so an underwater microphone, into the ocean. And all of a sudden, this new world opened up. All of a sudden, there's singing seals and you hear these moans and groans of whales offshore, further away, uh, bowhead whales moving through. And all of a sudden, that sort of opened up that there's a different ecosystem here. And then... The Arctic was nothing like what I had thought. There's the colour. Devon Island is eroded red rock and it looks more like the banks of the Nile than uh, anything I'd expected to find in the Arctic. Flat table-like mesas and large screes of loose rock leading down to blue water at that time. But then as you walk across the landscape you might encounter some tiny little splash of colour, often the red of a lichen. The staggering beauty, it's very powerful, but it's also incredibly delicate. If, if you get down on your hands and knees in that magical period in July and early August, you can smell the vegetation and the flowers. Uh, there are tiny, tiny species of orchids that bloom at that time, and they are delicate and, and exquisite, and as you tromp through in your hiking boots, you squash them. The Arctic in our imagination may be an austere, forbidding expanse of frozen whiteness, timeless and immutable, but we've been finding that it's delicate and changeable. The, the notion now, I would suggest, of Canada as an Arctic country that is barren and full of ice and snow and dark most of the time and probably deadly and going to kill you is still there. The residue of that is still there, and it's based on reality, let's face it. Um, is tempered or complicated by an anxiety uh, that many people feel. Uh, it's a very a recent uh, awakening to um, not a north or an arctic as powerful and deadly, but as uh, fragile, as delicate, as threatened. I guess it's the vulnerability of the Arctic that is so remarkable. I, I find it staggering that the polar bear, this very ferocious predator is itself so vulnerable to the loss of the ice uh, but so is everything else up there just a tiny shift in the temperature that means from being frozen to melting for water uh, utterly transforms the entire uh, landscape and the entire ecosystem and the entire environment. Regardless of any lingering disputes over what the short-term and long-term impacts of climate change will be, one thing is indisputable. Arctic sea ice is disappearing. Now scientists like David Barber, who were once skeptical about climate change, are being forced to imagine an Arctic ocean that could be largely open water within just a few years, according to his latest research. In the sort of late 80s and early 90s, that ice where we would work would typically melt out from the surface and it would do so in about July. And I was noticing that these melting periods were happening earlier and earlier. And one other dramatic thing that happened is we started to see melting from underneath, generated by the ocean heat instead of the atmospheric heat. The Arctic is a much different place now than it was when I started working in my career uh, 29 years ago. 
the ice used to be so thick in the springtime when we're hunting seals. It's like everything is a month early and a month late in the fall to, for a freeze-up. Just beneath that ice, there's a layer of very cold water, which is really created by runoff from rivers and by uh, some processes that happen when water freezes. And that cold insulating layer just beneath the ice helps to keep the ice uh, frozen because just a bit deeper down, there's quite warm water. Warm water creeps in from, from the Pacific through the Bering Strait and up through the Atlantic and sits there beneath the ice. The ice is sitting on top of a great bathtub full of warm water with only this thin layer of cold water runoff uh, keeping it from melting away. And the changes are happening in real time for Arctic peoples. We used to have a lot of multi-year ice. Uh, now we only have the first year ice. The heat is uh, what we're noticing. And most of the hunters think it's coming from the sea. But what elders were not- noticing the most was uh, it's the sun does not rise where it used to. The sun doesn't rise where it used to? It's been commonplace to hear about how the wind and cloud patterns that the Inuit have used to predict the weather for centuries have changed so much recently they can no longer rely on them. But the position of the sun? Well, up here, uh, we're 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, so we lose the sun in December and for a whole month. We don't see the sun, just the day glow. And in January, second week of January, the sun starts to arrive over the horizon. And elders notice, because they're always observing the environment, uh, they've noticed it had shifted to the right, where it used to rise over the years. And they're saying the sun is a lot higher in the summertime. That, apparently, is one of the stranger and less anticipated effects of a warming Arctic. Warmer air in the atmosphere over a still cold landscape causing changes in refraction, bending the light of the sun in different ways from the past. Essentially, a mirage of a higher sun arriving earlier in the year. But the changes are so dramatic, some elders thought the world itself was tilting. Even in the high Arctic, One of the hunters was telling me uh, in 1953, they used to have one-hour day glow in the winter. Now they have two hours. So so you think the world really tilted. But for the creatures of the Arctic, their immediate concerns are with the ice. It begins and ends with the ice. Uh, The ice is what uh, made the bear's life possible, that it can go out on the sea and get access to the seals that feed on the riches of the warm sea beneath the ice. And it ends with the ice. As it disappears, the Arctic will utterly change and the polar bear is going to go. We don't even look for polar bears the same way that we used to uh, 25, 30 years ago. The ice just isn't the same. In some places, we just don't even have ice anymore. So so you're seeing these changes in the distribution of animals uh, and polar bears are certainly showing us uh, that there are many more changes coming in the north as well. 
when we're looking at an Arctic ecosystem, you have to think of the sea ice more like the soil that you would find in a forest. You take away the sea ice and you end up with a different ecosystem. But other creatures that live in the sea uh, that are also iconic, the narwhal with its uh, long tusk that inspired the myth of the unicorn, that will almost certainly go too because it specializes in feeding under the ice. Then there are the bowhead whales, which like to live alongside the ice. They they'll might find it difficult. And beluga too, the white whale, uh, that uses the ice to shelter from predators. So that's, that's going to be under threat. And they're going to be replaced by other kinds of creatures that are happier in more open water. We're already seeing in the eastern Arctic that more and more killer whales are coming into that system. So we replace one top predator with another top predator. New species, and some say a whole new ocean as North Atlantic species enter Arctic waters. New optical illusions, and that may mean it's time to set aside our old illusions about the Arctic and our relationship to it. As we learn more about the Arctic, the less imaginary it becomes, but that just shows how imaginary our ideas of the North have been. We've never seen a change on this scale in human history anywhere in the world, I think. Just a few decades ago, you'd see that whole top of the north covered by a shining field of ice. And in a few decades from now, at summer's end, it'll be dark water. It'll look completely different. The planet from space will look completely and utterly different. And we'll have achieved that in just a few decades. You're changing the scale of how we think about things. And, and that's, uh, that's something that sort of forces you into sort of some imaginary uh, scenarios about what the ice would look like. How long will the ice be in a place? Or when will the temperatures get to a certain degrees uh, above zero so that plants can start growing again? And it's something that you really have to rewrite the books and you're thinking about how an animal might make a living. My biggest concern in all this change is the people who've lived there for so long, the uh, Inuit of the Arctic, because they risk seeing their current livelihoods being destroyed without necessarily getting a slice of any new wealth that does come to the Arctic. So they've got to be very, very smart to make sure they're not left out as losers in a ruined Arctic. For Zacharias Kunuk, the job for the Inuit is to bridge their traditional knowledge and way of life with the changes being forced on them by the changes to the Arctic, and bridge the gaps between traditional knowledge and science. They don't have to reimagine a new Arctic. They're living it. These days, more and more, we're just like you. We're sitting on a desk in front of our computers checking the weather. We still use Inuit cultures because we have to know uh, where the danger areas are and what they look like uh, when we're hunting out there. We still use uh, snow drifts made by winds to direct ourselves. Yeah, we still use the old techniques and add new ones. Uh, yeah, climate change, it's fast enough you notice it. Uh, it's slow enough, you could adapt to it. But we have to adapt to it. We have to change our routes, our travel routes. And adapt in other unanticipated ways to keep their way of life viable. Uh, we're already noticing this last summer, due to climate change, there's more fresh water on top of the salt water. Because 
uh, in the summertime when we shoot seals, they float and we just pick them up. But in the past two years, we've been noticing seals that we should have been sinking when they're not supposed to. So that, that tells us there's more fresh water on top of the sea. So we have to figure out a better way uh, to catch them. Scientists and aspects of the Arctic ecosystem itself struggle to keep up with the pace of change and melting. But what about the way we think of ourselves as a northern Arctic nation? What about our sense of who we are as Canadians? I think it's too soon to say. Um, I, I think the the notion of uh, notions, because it's many, that we have of ourselves as northern, from our uh, obsession with hockey. <laughs> uh, on through so many other things um, that um, that has not yet been dislodged or displaced or troubled in any significant way by the realities of climate change in the Arctic. The signs of it are still geographically very far removed from us and um, too many other things come along that that interfere and, and affect us right now. That that something that's this is very human. This is not Canadians aren't special in this in this regard. I don't see any any huge transformation. So some new phase taking taking place in any significant way. I see signs of it um, in the arts. But I don't, I don't see any sort of sea change, as it were, in Canadian attitudes. Uh, we're not assuming more responsibility. We're not thinking ourselves as, as uh, losing our heritage or our northern identity. I think we're still very much in the mode of having that identity, of being a northern nation. The north is still the north. Just not the same north so many of us imagine. That becomes clear the more the Arctic melts and becomes developed for mineral, oil, and gas exploration and shipping. And to reimagine what it means to be an Arctic nation, we need to reimagine what the Arctic itself is becoming. We need, as human beings, these imagined places. The danger is that you allow the imagined place uh, to supersede, to take precedence over realities and then fail to deal with the realities. When I started out, I had this picture in my mind, which I think most Canadians have, of this timeless beauty and this untouched wilderness and, and you know, the domain of the polar bear and these fantastic whales that live in this pristine environment and that, that the impacts of the human civilization to the south and the, the great cities of the world have not impacted this pristine part of the world. And unfortunately, that vision is untrue. It's a fallacy. And it's something that has been promulgated by our media and uh, by our desire to have something pure in our landscapes. We wish that there was a place that we could still call the pristine wilderness. If you ask Zacharias Kunick, what a rapidly changing Arctic means for his identity, what it means to be a northern people, he'll tell you it's about adapting traditional knowledge and a way of life to a changing world. If you ask Andrew DeRoche, David Barber, Alan Anderson, and Cheryl Grace, they don't seem to see it as an existential question either. The Arctic is the world's air conditioner, and it's very sensitive to what we do in the south of Canada, so for them, it's more of a practical or even moral question. 
They wonder if Canadians are willing to accept the responsibility of being an Arctic nation. We are an Arctic country. And so the world looks at us and says, well, what do the Canadians think about what's going on in the Arctic? And what are they doing to address the issue of global-scale climate change based on the evidence of what's going on in their backyard? And that gives me a lot of concern as to how we project ourselves on the international stage. I really wish that uh, Canadians would do more than simply uh, think about the Arctic as being a bit of their territory that's sort of up there and about which they get very angry if anybody tries to either take it away from them or travel through it, as happened with the American tanker. If Canadians saw it uh, in a more continuous way, it was in their consciousness the whole time, that would be a wonderful thing. I can't see uh, human beings surviving without the imagination. And if we can't manage to change the way we behave in the South uh, in order to save the and protect the fragility of the, of the North and the Arctic, I can't think of a better way to categorize that failure than as, at least at its outset, a failure of the imagination. Chris Wadsko with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation produced that piece. The Nature Conservancy has generously provided support for this podcast, committed to protecting nature and preserving life. To hear more pieces like this one, visit the Public Radio Exchange at prx.org. With this episode, after four years of weekly stories, our podcast will cease production for now. We're eager to continue, but we must find support in these difficult financial times. Of course, if you, our listeners, have thoughts about individuals or companies that might want to underwrite our podcast, please do let us know. You can contact us through our website, nature.org stories. I'm Samantha Brown with Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for listening.